While they're making their way out, let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word, maybe turn on your device. Today, church, we begin a journey through the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, it's in the Old Testament. If you begin at the beginning of the Bible and start to go the other direction, you'll find it there after Ezra, uh, the book of Nehemiah. Now, the reason why we walk through the book of Nehemiah is because Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding. It's a book about starting over. It's a book about, as we would say, do-overs. And I believe all of us in our life uh, need a lot of do-overs. We need a lot of rebuilding. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in our walk with Christ, in a battle with sin. Uh, maybe it's in our uh, parenting and child world. Whatever the case may be, as people who are fallen, as people who are broken by sin, we are in constant need of do-overs, redos. We need to be built back up in the faith. And that's exactly what you find in the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, uh, the man, Nehemiah, will travel back to Jerusalem to help the city of Jerusalem rebuild its walls. But there's more to it than that. He's not just going to lead them to rebuild walls. He's going to lead them to rebuild their lives, to rebuild their focus, to rebuild their worship on the Lord. In fact, if you were to survey the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that it kind of splits in half uh, pretty clearly. Chapters 1 through 7, it's all about building a wall. It's all about getting Jerusalem back to the status where it was. And then starting in verse 8, after the wall has been built, he begins to renew or rebuild their heart towards God. He begins to teach them about how they should worship and hear God's word and change their lives. And so we have, honestly, this idea that the first part is about rebuilding the wall, and the second part is about rebuilding their lives, but we learn as we survey the whole book, they go hand in hand. They work together. The call of the book of Nehemiah is that we would rebuild. Over the last year, we have felt somewhat fractured, uh, somewhat uncertain, uh, certainly the church has felt the, the weight of being spread out, of being distanced from one another. There is this sense that after 2020, we have got to rebuild. We've got to start again. We've got to get back to working and focusing on the Lord. Instead of just reacting to everything that's come, we've got to start pursuing the way of God. And so Nehemiah will help us. It'll help us rebuild. Maybe this morning, you really need the Lord to help you rebuild your character your conscience. You might need the Lord to help you rebuild your pursuit of Him. You might need the Lord to help you rebuild your relationships or your family. You might need the Lord to help you rebuild in a lot of ways. And through the book of Nehemiah, I think we'll learn about how a, a believer, a follower of God, starts over. Starts over. We could all use some do-overs from time to time. As we study the book of Nehemiah, there's some things I want you to see that we'll learn. So I want to give you a little bit of background on what we'll learn in the book. I think there are five lessons in the book of Nehemiah. Now, the, the joke in churches is a pastor only preaches through Nehemiah when he needs a building campaign. We are out of debt. We don't need a building campaign, all right? We, we don't have that for the other way. The other reason why people often study the book of Nehemiah is to learn Christian leadership. Nehemiah stands for us as a, a picture of what a Christian leader looks like. Well, we'll certainly see those along the way, but, but I think there's more to it. So here are five lessons I think we'll learn while we study the book of Nehemiah. First, I think we'll learn that God is faithful. Now, I realize that that's one of those uh, Bible school answers where we can just say God is faithful and it always applies. Brothers and sisters, it always applies. God is faithful. His character is always true. He's always honest. But what we'll see in the book of Nehemiah 
is that God made promises to his people, and lo and behold, he keeps his promises. He is faithful to his word. He is consistent to what he says. It is a breath of fresh air in the world in which we operate where all of us are struggling to keep our word on a regular basis. We're struggling to have the people in our lives keep their word. We're struggling to have a society be honest with one another. It is a breath of fresh air to see a God who is always faithful to his word. Secondly, we will see in the book of Nehemiah that God is sovereign. And what I mean by that is simply he is in charge of everything. He rules over everything. He rules over his own people, and he rules over the people who don't acknowledge him. He moves kings. He moves nations. He is in charge. Nothing happens without God's eye on it. God is never caught off guard. He's in charge. And third, we will learn that God's word is good. One of the things you will see in the book of Nehemiah is that there is this rallying back to the word of God. There is this need for the Word of God to be a part of our life and part of our direction and and the center part of who we are as a church and as a people. That will go hand in hand with how we worship the Lord. Number four, we will see that God's people should pray. In fact, that's what we'll see this morning, that prayer should be a centerpiece of our life. And then finally, it will culminate with this idea that God's people should be set apart. We should look different. We will study through this narrative how... Israel rebuilds its wall, but we will learn through it how God in His goodness rebuilds His people. That's the hope and the joy we find in this text. So we start with chapter 1. We're going to cover all of chapter 1 today. Now don't panic, it's only 11 verses and I'll only read it 40 times, so you'll be fine, don't worry. But we start with chapter 1 and we see that for any project, for any Christian do-over, For any start again, for any place where we look at the Lord and say, Lord, I've messed up, I need your help, I need to do over, I need to rebuild, Lord, I need you. Wherever you are in the process of do over or rebuild, let me tell you where it starts. It starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. We'll see that in Nehemiah chapter 1. Join me there in your copy of God's Word. Let me read the chapter to us. Let us hear the Word of the Lord, and then we'll look at it kind of piece by piece along the way. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, not excuse me, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 19th in the 20th year, excuse me, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came from a certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, verse 3. And they said to me, The remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. You We have not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8. Remember the word that you had commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have remembered, excuse me, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, help us. Help us see from this text how prayer is the beginning of a rebuild. How you call us to confess our sin, to walk in a way that's worthy of you, that, that's honoring of you. And Father, that we are to do that by beginning with prayer. Lord, tune our hearts to see this. Father, we are busy people, constantly going and moving and running and planning and trying to solve. Help us to see, Father, that the starting point, the starting point of change in our life is coming before you in prayer. Lord, bless our time in this narrative, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to understand what we're reading, you're going to need some context. So let me give you a quick survey of the Bible. Let me walk you through where we are. You begin in Genesis with the creation of the world, and God makes Adam and Eve, and they are the first man and woman. From Adam and Eve come their sons, Cain and Abel. We know the famous story of the first murder found in the Bible. God gets tired of the sin of man and brings a great flood, and few are rescued by Noah and God's ark that he provided. After the people are rescued, they begin to still, in some form or fashion, spread out in sin. So along about Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man by the name of Abram. He refers to him as Abraham after he calls him. He makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to draw out of you a family. I'm going to make a nation. The nation of Israel did not exist until God chose Abraham. And out of Abraham, Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Esau and Jacob had sons, 12 sons and one of those sons was named Joseph, who had a pretty coat of lots of colors. And Joseph, being betrayed by his brothers, was sold into slavery to Egypt. Now Joseph rose to power in Egypt. You can read this in the story of Genesis. Joseph rose to power in Egypt. And while he rose to power in G Egypt, he became the right hand of the Pharaoh. Now the nation of Israel, left behind by his 11 brothers, was starving, was hurting, was in need of mercy and food. They come down to Egypt. They find Joseph there. Joseph rescues his family and all of Israel, which is Abraham's family, moves to Egypt. Now the years passed. Joseph died, new pharaohs come into power, and they see the proliferation of the Jewish people, and they decide to enslave them. They decide to rest upon them a heavy yoke of slavery. For 400 years, the nation of Israel is in slavery to, the, to, uh, to Egypt. Because of their disobedience to God, God allows them into slavery. Then God raises up Moses. You will know Moses from the book of Exodus. God raises up Moses to send Moses in. And Moses rescues the people by the power of God out of Egypt. And they make their way back to the promised land. They wander in the desert for a while. Moses will die. Joshua will take over. You with me so far? I'm walking you through the Bible, man. This is History 101. Joshua will take over. Joshua will take them into the promised land, the Palestinian region, the nation of Israel, the place where God has blessed his people and given them the land. And Joshua will cross into the promised land by winning the battle of Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Jo no charismatics in the room. Thank you for helping me. He wins the promised land. 
And then the people began to clamor for a king. They didn't need a king. They had a God on a throne over all things, but they clamored for a king. So God gave them a king. God gave them Saul. Saul, in the end, turned against God, went away. God withdrew his spirit from Saul. So he rose up David, the shepherd boy that killed Goliath. David, the heart-playing man after God's own heart, yet he had sin. He was broken. He was fallen. After David came Solomon, the wisest man to live on the earth, the man who wrote most of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other sums in the book, the place where we find this wisdom of God. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits into two and it goes into chaos with a northern and a southern kingdom. It falls apart. And then the Babylonians come and crush it all. Now, you'll know about the Babylonians because I'm sure you've heard the name Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Jews, right? He comes in, he conquers Israel. He raises the walls to the ground. He burns Solomon's beautiful temple to ashes and he deports most of the Jewish people. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's management style when he conquered other kingdoms was disperse them. If he dispersed them, then they could not rally together and come against him. So he grabbed the nation of Israel, and he grabbed the brightest and the strongest and the wealthiest, and he sent them out of Israel, spreading them out. This is what we know as the exile. From that, we find the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And so they find themselves there. But you know, like all of history, Nebuchadnezzar eventually will be conquered. You with me so far? Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. That's where we're at. Nebuchadnezzar will lose to Cyrus, the Persian king. If you opened your Bible to the book of Ezra, you'll find Cyrus mentioned in the first six chapters of Ezra. Cyrus raises to power. Now, Cyrus has a different philosophy when he conquers a nation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar conquered a nation and said, I'm going to spread them out, I'm going to weaken them, and I'm going to make them learn my culture. They're going to bow to me. They're going to pray to me. Cyrus had a different diplomatic approach. He thought to himself, being a more benevolent ruler, if I let them have their own culture, if I let them have their own religions, if I let them have their own way, then I can be their king, but they'll be happy where they are. Much like the Roman occupation in the New Testament. We'll let them have some of their own stuff. So under Cyrus, in the book of Ezra, some of the Jews are now allowed to go back. They're allowed to go back. Ezra, the book before Nehemiah, which in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are considered one book together. Ezra goes back first, about 15 years before Nehemiah goes back. Ezra goes back, and the first thing he does is build the altar of the Lord and the temple. Brothers and sisters, before you build a security fence, you better have God in the center of what you're doing. And so he builds, well, that's an amen moment now, come on, brothers. He builds a temple. They build a temple. Now, in Ezra, though, if you were to read about along chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, you'll find in there that they attempted to rebuild the wall, but it didn't work. It didn't work because there were those who thought, we better not let the Jews get too powerful. We better not let them build the wall. They came against Ezra. He didn't have the steam or the momentum to get it done. And so now all they have, after 104, almost 150 years since Nebuchadnezzar, all they got is a temple. And so then Cyrus dies. His son takes over. His son is a little bit meaner. He doesn't let people go back the way they should. He dies. Darius I takes over. After Darius I takes over, then the next Persian king is Xerxes. Xerxes, you might know from the Bible, he'll be called a different name, but he's the king that grabs Esther along the way. After Esther is chosen and becomes a king, the next king will be Artaxerxes. If you look there in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, you'll see his name. He's the king now. And when he becomes king, he begins to read back into the scrolls and finds that Cyrus, the first king of Persia, let the Jews go back. And so he starts to take that diplomatic approach. So 140 years, Babylonian has crushed Israel, spread them out. 140 years later, the only thing we got back is Ezra building a puny temple and an altar, but we still don't have our security. We still don't have our 
identity. So that's where we are in the story. That's Bible history. You're welcome. I went to seminary just to teach you that, all right? Now, what I want you to see now that you know the context is I want you to see a couple of things from chapter 1. First, I want you to see this. I want you to see Nehemiah's problem. Look with me at the first three verses. Nehemiah's problem. We have here the words of Nehemiah. These are personal words, but I want you to look at verse 2. Then Hananiah, one of my brothers, now we don't know if this is actual brother or just a Jewish family member, but he identifies him as a friend, a brother. He says, then Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So they've come back from Israel to the capital of Persia to give a report about what's going home among our Jewish homeland. How is it at home, you would say? Listen to the report. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem, tell me about God's city. Tell me about Zion. Tell me about the temple. Is it been rebuilt? Tell me about the wall. Are the gates hung? Do we have a shepherd gate yet? Do we have a gate where the fish are brought in? Do we have a gate where the men gather to discuss the things of the city? Tell me of the city. Give me the report. Let me hear how our brothers and sisters are doing in the homeland. How has God been blessing them? Now notice the report. He says in verse 3, The remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now listen, let's make sure we understand this. There's a logistical problem to not having a wall in the middle of this uh, world. You've already heard that Nebuchadnezzar came in and crushed the city, and then the Persians came in and crushed the city. The wall around the city was certainly, first and foremost, security. It was safety. You built a wall around the city in the middle of the desert, and that way you could close the gates at night and you could keep out trouble. The wall was a a sign of, of safety, security. It was also a sign of economic growth because you had a city. You had something going on there. You had a reason to open gates and close gates. You had commerce coming in and out. It was a sign of stability. It was a sign of identity. How could you be a nation if you don't even have a capital city? How could you be the people of God if you don't even have identifiable place to rule God's kingdom from? What has happened since Saul and David and Solomon and the great city of Jerusalem? There is a lot built into not having a wall. But let us be clear about the main problem. The main problem is is that Jerusalem is a sore spot to the glory of God. You see, the people of Israel were supposed to be, according to the covenant given to Abraham, remember way back in Genesis 12, that I will bless you, and from you, you'll be a blessing to all the nations. And so the city of Jerusalem was supposed to be the earthly symbol of the place where God's people sat, and the light of the kingdom of God shone out, and the glory of God was lifted up. But why in the world would anybody want a God who can't even have a city with walls built around it? They were ashamed. Because they were besmirching the goodness and the holiness and the glory of God. They were uh, a people who were supposed to be a, a city on a hill and a light to the nations. But instead, they are in shambles and in shame. And so the problem is not just there's not a wall. The problem is, is that God's glory is being mocked and ridiculed. You see, brothers and sisters, your problem is not just your sin. It's not just your broken relationship. Your problem is not just your parenting woes. Your problem is anytime we run into a place where we are opposite what God is doing, we are defaming His glory. 
And so your problem is not that you just got caught or you're struggling or you got this one little sin that you're trying to overcome, but you pet it from time to time. Your problem is you are mocking the very glory of God. The walls meant God was not being glorified by His people. The problem was God was not receiving the honor due to Him. It was not a building issue. It was not a logistics issue. It was not a, how are we going to raise the capital for this project? It was a, how can we bring God back His glory? What is due to God? Nehemiah saw the problem. I want you to see a second truth from chapter 1, and that's simply this. I want you to see Nehemiah's posture. How will he respond to this problem? How do you respond to problems in your life? What's the first thing that you do when you are faced with a a problem, an issue, a sin, a crisis, a broken relationship? How how do you approach a problem? Well, notice in verse 4 how Nehemiah dealt with this problem. As soon as I heard these words, now we might say it this way, ASAP. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, this is an interesting thing because I I believe that the center of chapter 1 is verse 4. I believe the center of chapter 1 is verse 4 because in verse 4, we find how a follower of the Lord is to respond when they are facing a struggle, when they are facing a problem. You want to know how to handle an issue, how to handle a problem, how to face an uncertainty, how to deal with the tumult of life, how to deal with sin in your own heart. You, You want to know how you are to go against those things. Here's the first thing you should do. Stop, sit, weep, pray. Now, that's the opposite of what we do, isn't it? That's the very opposite of what happens. Notice what it says he did. First, he said he sat and wept. He sat and wept. He did not call a building committee meeting. He did not start searching on Pinterest affordable ways to build a wall. He did not gather a group together and start learning motivational techniques to get a rabble-roused group of people to charge into the desert and build something. He didn't start listening to the 21 refutable laws of leadership. That's not what he did. He stopped. And he wept. And he mourned. And he fasted. And he prayed. Now, why is this important? Let me give you two thoughts here. First, brothers and sisters... When you find yourself facing a moment where the glory of God has been broken, has not been given its due, when you find yourself lost in sin, in a broken relationship, in need of rebuilding something, when you find yourself struggling to go anywhere, here's the first thing you ought to do. You ought to stop and weep over sin. You ought to stop and be broken over sin. Too often, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves in sin, you know the first thing we want to do is try to get it over, get it behind us, and move on as fast as we can. That's not the biblical picture of repentance. The biblical picture of repentance is mourning and weeping over the fact that the glory of God has been harmed, has been hurt. You see, one of the reasons why we don't rebuild really well is because we don't sit and mourn and soak and understand the very grievous fact of our sin and our brokenness. Nehemiah, out of empathy for his people and out of understanding that the sin of Israel had led to this moment, Nehemiah stopped and felt the weight and the gravity of the brokenness of sin. And he wept and he mourned. 
Sometimes when our marriages are struggling, we try to find the fastest counselor and the quickest book to read and the plan to fix it. Sometimes when our children behave in sinful mechanisms, we try to find the biggest belt and the longest switch as fast as possible. Now, I'm not negating get after it quick now. Sometimes in our life, when we face something, we, we begin immediately thinking, i got to do step one and step two and step three, and then I'll do over here, and I'll, I'll talk to this person, and I'll plan this thing, and I'll do this. And Nehemiah shows us in this text, the first thing we should do is just stop and wrestle with the fact that we have sinned against the holy God. See, I believe sometimes we don't rebuild real well because we don't deal with blowing up the broken foundation first. We've got to stop and sit and mourn. We've got to deal with the fact that, that our posture towards the Lord when we're rebuilding should be, oh God, as David would say in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Oh God, Oh God, I, I know I need to change. I know I need to fix this. I know there are things that I'm going to have to do to make this right. But first and foremost, I just need to sit here and say, God, I'm a sinner so far from you. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. I'm sorry that I've not done what you've called me to do. I, I'm sorry that I have brought defaming your glory. God, I'm sorry. When you sin, how's your posture? Is it, well... Uh, confess it and God is true to forget it as far as the east from the west, get up, dust your knees off, keep going. Th those are true things. I, I'm not trying to tell you that we should just consistently wallow in sin. We live as people who are forgiven. It's been nailed to the cross. Just this week, my uh, family, we were joking about something and one of my children broke a dish and, and my son, being so brilliant and so smart, said, well, it's okay, Jesus nailed it to the cross. So that's fine, but we still got to figure out who broke his dish and how we're going to get it played for, right? Yet yeah, Jesus has nailed it to the cross. We're forgiven. That doesn't mean we shouldn't stop and reckon with the idea that we have sinned against a holy God. See, I, I think we move on way too fast, brothers and sisters, instead of stopping and mourning over our sin. I want you to see just a different thought here before we move to the next idea, and that's this. Not only that, but, but you know what Nehemiah does? He puts himself in their shoes. He hears about the exile living in home. Verse 11 tells us he's a cupbearer to the king. He's living well. He's in the king's palace. He's living well. But when he hears about his family, his brothers, his sisters, who are lost and leaderless in Israel, he sits down and meets them in their mourning. I think there's a good lesson there for us. When we come across a brother or sister who's found himself in sin and brokenness, who needs rebuilding, who needs a do-over, one of the things that we can do as the body of Christ is bear with them in their sin. We can sit and mourn and weep and know that they've brought uh, a dishonor to the Lord and we can feel their pain. We can have empathy with them. We can bear with one another's burdens. That's what Nehemiah did. His posture was prayer. But I want you to see a second part of his posture, and that's simply this. Not only did he weep and mourn, he fasted and prayed. Look at verse 4. It says it. He fasted and prayed. He went straight to the conversation with the Father. Now, fasting here is a way of strengthening our prayer. It's a way of tuning our hearts and focusing in on prayer. It's a way of saying, I need nothing else from this world but communion with God at this moment. I need to seek the Lord. It brings a, a fervidness to our prayer. So he starts to pray. 
He begs the Lord. And, and let me be clear. If you look at chapter 1, look at verse 1 there. It talks about the month of Kislev. And then you look over at chapter 2 and it says we're in the month of uh, Nessie. He, here's what you need to know. Four months of prayer before he ever walked into the king's presence to ask for his request. Four months of prayer and fasting and mourning. He did not just say, Lord, help me with these plans. And then he got up and started living out his to-do list. He begged the Lord, God, if you don't move, this won't work. If you don't wash us, if you don't forgive us, if you don't do something on our behalf, this will not work. Too often, brothers and sisters... We throw prayer out there because we know as believers we're supposed to. And so we pray our prayer and then we get on with our business and we leave that prayer right where we left it. Too often, brothers and sisters, you know what we do? We make all of our plans and then we pray for God to bless our plans. We, we do everything we want to do and then we say, hey, God, by the way, I'm trying to fix it all this way. If you could make this work, that'd be great. Instead of stopping and begging the Lord. Prayer helps us focus our attention. Prayer helps us settle our heart. Prayer helps us in tune with God by faith. You're more likely to trust God when you get up off your knees. You're most likely to follow His plan when you've been with Him in prayer because your heart is communing with the Lord. You're more likely to do what He's called you to do the right way and not your way or my way when we pray. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, writes about this when he says prayer. He says, learning to pray doesn't offer us a less busy life. It offers us a less busy heart. We can focus. We can get in tune with God. Nehemiah's posture was one of weeping and mourning over the brokenness of Israel, over the sin of his people, over the shame of God's glory. And then he went straight to his knees to begin to pray. Moms and dads, how often do we hear about our children and we start the to-do list of how to fix it instead of starting on our knees? Husbands and wives, how long do we fight before we stop and say, Lord, we, if you don't move, if you don't do something, we pray. The steps for rebuilding are simply this. Understand the problem and pray. Now, I want you to see a third part in the last part of this chapter, and that's simply this. Not only do we see Nehemiah's problem and we see Nehemiah's posture, now we see Nehemiah's prayer. I want us to learn how to pray. I want to teach you from the text how we are to pray, what we are to do in our time of prayer. And in fact, here's what you'll see in Nehemiah's prayer. You'll see a three-step prayer. I'll give them to you on the screen this morning. You'll see him praise. You'll see him move from praise to confession and from confession to petition. That's going to be the steps of prayer. He's going to walk through how we should pray when we're in the midst of woes. We should begin with praise. We should move to confession. And then we should ask. We should have our petition. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at the text. Verse 5. Here's his prayer. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He begins with praise. Notice where he locates God. He locates God in heaven. He says the God of heaven. You, you know what he's saying, right? The God over everything. 
the God who is enthroned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God whose earth is his footstool, the God who every king and every president, every politician, every celebrity, every person walking the earth is under his hand, is under his thumb. He is in charge. He is above all others. There is no one higher than him. He's not saying, oh, Lord of God of heaven, ask your big brother to help me. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, oh, Lord God of heaven, the one and only, I need you. He begins with praise. He begins with aligning his heart, knowing that he is walking into the presence of the very God who is holy of holy. He begins with the right posture of prayer by praising the Lord. Jesus would teach us this. In the Lord's Prayer, he would say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The God who's over all things, holy are you, set apart are you, different are you. Brothers and sisters, when you hurry into prayer with your to-do list for God, you miss who you're praying to. When you hurry into prayer and say, God, I need you to do this and this and this and this, and please make this work. Amen, thanks, i got to get to work. When you hurry into prayer, you forget, brothers and sisters, that when we open our mouths and we utter to the Lord, we are speaking to the God over all things. It's one thing to be short and quick when we talk to one another. It's one thing to, to shoot a text back and forth and move on with our day. It's, it's, it's one thing to be quick in our verbiage. But brothers and sisters, when we pray, we are coming before God. The Alpha and the Omega, the Creator of all things, the One who holds all things together, the One who saved us by the blood of Christ, the One who redeems us and calls us His family, the One who is securing for us a home in heaven for those who believe in Him and follow Him. We are speaking to God, the God who is before creation, the God over creation, the God who sustains creation. We are speaking to God. And Nehemiah knows I've got a lot to ask and I've got a lot to confess, but I want to start by lining my heart up in the right place and knowing that I'm not just running up to the King of earth and speaking to him. I'm not just running into my family and shooting out some words. I am coming before holy God. And he praises him. Notice how he praises him too. Just look there real quickly. He says, you're the God of heaven. He locates him. And then he says, great and awesome God, more powerful than any. No one matches him. Notice this last part. Who keeps his covenant love and or keeps his covenant and steadfast love. He's praising God. You want to know why? Because God is always good. God is always faithful. God is always a God of love and kindness towards his people. And so he begins by saying, Lord, I'm coming to you because you are over all things, and you are the God who has proven yourself over and over and over as a God who loves and holds and sustains. And I've got nowhere else to go. You know that prayer is a confession that we've got nowhere else to turn. I've got nowhere else to go. God, I'm on my knees before you, begging you to rebuild my marriage, begging you to rebuild my home, begging you to help me battle this sin and build back my life of holiness and righteousness after you. Lord, I'm begging you to rebuild the church. I'm begging you to do this work. And I've got nowhere else to go because there's no one over you. Lord, if you don't move, it won't get done. He praises him. Secondly, he confesses. Look with me at the next part of his prayer. 
You see, this will naturally happen when you start to praise the Lord. You'll start to realize how far from the Lord you are. When we start to see God located rightly in heaven and glorious and big and above all things, it begins to show us just how small we are, how big the chasm is between us and God. So look at verse 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father and my father's house has sinned against you. We have acted corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments and statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant. Moses, he begins to confess his sin. He begins to realize and say, Lord, Israel's in the mess it's in because Israel has sinned. It's not your fault the walls are burned to the ground. It's not your fault the temple is a, a shadow of what it once was. It's not your fault that, that Nebuchadnezzar took us into captivity. It's not your fault. You're not to blame that Cyrus is over us and um, that, our, uh, that we've been ruled by these kings. It's not your fault, Lord. It's right because we have sinned. You see, too often when something happens in our life, the first thing we want to say is, God, why did you let this happen? Brothers and sisters, you realize that if God let happen what should happen, we would be a mess. We would be a mess. We would be unhelped. We would, be un, uh, 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 we would have no mercy in this life. God's not to blame. Our sin is. Notice what he says specifically. He says, we didn't keep your commandments. He's referring to the ten. We didn't keep your statutes. That refers to the rules and the laws of worship. We didn't worship you right. We didn't honor you. We didn't do what we said we would do after you saved us, after you rescued us, after your grace was poured on us. We didn't respond well. And we got what we deserved. You, you removed your hand of mercy from us and we, and we got what we deserved. And Lord, it's our sin that's brought us to this point. The walls are torn down because of our sin. Brothers and sisters, when you start to rebuild your life, you got to understand the mess you're in is your mess. God's not the blame for your mess. He's not the blame for your problems. He's not the blame for your sin. He's not the blame for your brokenness. He's to blame for rescuing you. He's to blame for putting it back together. He's to blame for empowering you to walk past those things and rebuild your life. He's not to blame for the problem that you're in. That's where we confess our sin. But I want you to see something really neat in the text. Look with me at verse uh, 11. Look at what he said. I'm not verse 11. Excuse me. Uh, look back up. Oh, yeah, verse 11. No, not verse 11. I'll find it in a minute. Oh, verse uh, 6. The second part of verse 6. Well, that wasn't even close to 11, was it? Even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah didn't say, Lord, them people. Those guys. Lord, if they just get their act right, we'd be a lot better off. He said, I've sinned too. He owned it. He confessed it. He didn't pass the buck or pass the blame. He said, Lord, I'm part of this problem. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I've fallen away. I'm to blame. Oh, too often, brothers and sisters, this is a whole sermon on itself. Too often, brothers and sisters, the church, the believers, we can stand and wag our, feelings, our fingers at a lost and dying world and say, look at those people. Oh, but when we stand before a holy God, we should cry out, God, look at me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry in my sin. I'm so broken in my sin. Lord, I have sinned against you. He owned it. Then he makes his petition. He's praised him. He's confessed his sin. Now he makes his request. And remember, he prays for four months. Four months of prayer. And this is his request. For four months he prays this. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have remembered 
by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant, singular, today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now notice what he asks. He asks God to remember. Now that seems pretty funny, doesn't it? Hey God, I think you forgot something. Could you remember this? Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're forgetful people. We can't find the remote. We can't find the keys. We don't know where we laid that piece of paper. We can't remember each other's names. If you leave church today and I say, hey, sister, that's probably because I don't remember your name. (laughs) That's not true. I'm just kidding. I love all you sisters. (laughs) We forget. God doesn't forget. Why in the world would Nehemiah say, God, remember your promises. Remember your covenant. You want to know why Nehemiah says this? It's not because God forget. It's because Nehemiah is asking according to God's word. You see, when you ask the Lord for help to rebuild whatever it is you need rebuilt, you're going to do better when your feet are firmly planted on the truth of God's word. You're going to do better when you're on the solid ground of God's promises. When you pray to the Lord based on the truth of His Scripture, that's when He hears and answers because His Scripture is right and true. Jesus would tell us this in John 14, 14. He would say these words to His disciples. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. He doesn't say that we just tack Jesus onto our prayer. Jesus, help me win the lottery. That ain't in the Scripture. Jesus, help me love my wife as you love the church. That's in the Scripture. Jesus, help me raise my children so that when they are old, they will not depart from you. That's in the Scripture. Jesus, help me use my spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. That's in the Scripture. Jesus, help me to use my finances in a way that would be generous and honorable to you. That's in the Scripture. Jesus, help me love my neighbor and my enemy as myself. Jesus, help me love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's in the Scripture. You see, brothers and sisters, when we say, God, remember your word, and we use that as our prayer, we are on the firm foundation of right praying. He prays God's word, as Russell Carter would remind us in his great hymn, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living Word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. That's what we're called to do when we pray. Pray on the promises of God. God, please help us. Move. Do something. Can I show you one final thing and then I'll close? Before he even prayed, God was already working. Look at the very end of verse 11. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah tells us that this Jewish guy, this Israelite, who's grown up in exile under the Persian kingdom, has risen to the place where he's the head butler of the king. He's beside the king all day long. He tastes the king's food to make sure it's not poison. He's trusted by the king. He would be somewhat of an unofficial advisor that the king would have a confidence in. Just like Esther in the story we find of her life, he's risen to a place of influence with a pagan king, a king who does not follow the God of the Bible. Now think about this for a moment. Nehemiah gets a report that the walls of Israel are destroyed and rebuilding is necessary. And he begins to weep and pray, God, you're good, you're powerful, we've sinned, please help us. 
And then we find out before he even uttered a prayer, God's already putting him in a place where God's going to move. God's already put him in a place where he could speak. How many Israelites in Persia were allowed to walk into the king's dining room and sit with him? One. The cupbearer. Nehemiah. Can I tell you why I enjoy that so much? That little sentence right there at the end? Because, brothers and sisters, when my life is in need of rebuilding, before I even pray, my God is already working. My God is already moving and orchestrating. Why? Because of His steadfast love for His people. The God of all creation is working on behalf of His people. He hears His people. He fulfills His promises. So when I pray... I'm not only praising and confessing and asking. I'm acknowledging, God, you're already working. You're already doing something. I'm already a cupbearer in your presence. You're on the move. That's how we start to rebuild our lives. That's how we start to rebuild our walk with the Lord and our relationships. We begin with prayer. Corey Ten Boom would say this about prayer. She would say, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Are you praying? Are you seeking the Lord? What do you need in your life rebuilt? What does God need to rebuild for you? What walls are in ash in your life? Is it your marriage or your finances? Is it your family? Is it your parenting and children? Is it Maybe it's just simply your love for the Lord. The sin in your life. Maybe you need to rebuild your focus. Maybe you, like Jamie and Maddie, need to say, you know what, I want to build my life on the Lord. I want to start with the right foundation. Whatever the case may be, brothers and sisters, it begins with prayer. Let us do that together. Would you bow your heads with me, Father? We thank you for the truth of Nehemiah. We thank you for this man of God who will be an example for us through the study of this Scripture. Um... Lord, we praise You that You have been good to us. Father, we ask You now to help us to pray in a way that would honor You. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Maybe some of you here need to rebuild something. You need God to rebuild it. Maybe you're caught in sin and you know that it's wrong and you need to start by confessing and weeping and mourning. Maybe your relationship is broken and you need to start to rebuild it. Friend, I hope you understand that by reading chapter 1, you'll understand you won't rebuild it. But coming to the Lord, He will. I pray this morning that you would trust the Lord Jesus. You would cry out to Him. And you let Him rebuild your life. Father, bless us now in our time of response to You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? You want to come and pray? Whatever the case may be, you come.